Amen. All right. Well, you can uh, turn over to Mark, Gospel of Mark tonight. Uh, we're in our little kind of mini-series, People Reaching People, Dealing with Evangelism. Last week, we looked at uh, basically our mandate, our method, and our model. The message is up on the, on the app and the website. We kind of looked at, we need to understand and see as Jesus saw and we saw in, in Matthew that he was uh, a man of compassion. It says that he had compassion on the crowds. He saw them as distressed and dispirited. He saw the great harvest of people and the great need for workers as well. And then we also basically said that we need to feel as Jesus felt, and he had compassion for people. And we have to be reminded that the, the people who are not in Christ yet are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And so we need to continue to pursue and be diligently be diligent to pray for them. And then we also said we need to do as Jesus did. He ministered to the people, both physically and spiritually, and he prayed for more workers. And when we got to our method, we talked about um, Colossians chapter 5, uh, verse 20. It says about us being ambassadors for Christ, if you remember that. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we have a, a ministry of reconciliation among those who have yet to be saved. And uh, we said representing Christ basically requires three skills. A basic knowledge. You have to have a mind that's accurately informed. You have to understand what the gospel is before you can share it. Uh, secondly, a tactical wisdom. And we said that's kind of more of an artful method of how to communicate to people who are lost. And then the last thing we looked at was an exemplary character. You have to have an attractive manner. Um, our, our character can either make or break our mission, we, we talked about. And so we wanted to make sure that we, we uh, covered them. And then our model, we looked at, at, at what Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 4. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And we sum that out by saying we have to be smart, nice, and tactical. Smart, nice, and tactical. And tonight, I kind of want to just continue along that frame of mind as far as sharing our faith. And tonight, I, I call this one step at a time. And if you remember, in, in Jesus' ministry, and we're going to read this here in the book of, of Mark, uh, chapter 12, first, Mark 12, uh, 28 to 34. And this is the last uh, days, really, of, of Jesus' life where... He is, uh, the religious leaders are inquiring, they're engaging him, running a battle uh, of theology with him. They're going back and forth on different things. And here in, in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment? is the most important of all. So he asks the Lord, well, which one is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In verse 32, look at what the scribe says. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, which is a, um, a way to address him. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And look at what he says. This is Jesus' response to this religious man. Not necessarily a follower of Christ. He's just a religious guy. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, what's he say? You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. (laughs) They realized, well, you know, the Lord really... um, really uh, is able to not be pinned in a corner, okay? And he gave this perfect answer to a question that was often asked. And I think sometimes we need to have that kind of, of wisdom. We need to be able to answer people wisely, not necessarily emotionally, not, not in a way that would um, cause them to be offended, or anything like that. We have to be careful with our words as we looked the first week. And then go back to now Mark 10. <laughs> okay, Mark 10. So he, te- he tells the scribe, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's not in the kingdom yet, but I think he's one step closer at least. And sometimes we have to think of evangelism that way. These people could be one step closer to the kingdom. They may not be in the kingdom, when you leave the conversation, but they could be one step closer. And in in Mark chapter 10, look at verse 17. He encounters this rich young man, it tells us. We know him as the rich young, young ruler, and it says, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, First of all, why do you call me good? <laughs> no one is good except God alone. So he, he doesn't necessarily answer his question. He, he at least here, he, he answers his question with a question. And then he says in verse 19, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So at this point, I think the Lord, he already knew this, but he's making it pretty evident to this man that um, if you're going to deal with the Lord, you have to deal honestly. And at that point, I don't think this man was being honest with himself nor the Lord, because there's no way he did everything perfectly up to this point in his life, but that's what he said. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. So he kind of had an inflated view of himself, but you know, when you look at that list, I mean, I think probably a lot of us in the room could say, well, we never murdered anybody. We never committed adultery. 
Um, you know, as far as lying, I think we've all probably lied at some point or another. Um, you know, honoring father and mother. So I, whether he was meaningful in his deceitful answer, I've done all this or not, or just had an inflated view of himself, Jesus is kind of seeing through it. All right? And he says, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. So what was the man's question? What, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And here, Jesus finally gets down. He goes, well, one thing. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And then look at what verse 22 says. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The point of this story is simply this, this illustration that Jesus uses here, this encounter with this rich young ruler. The point is that we, we're not told here whether this, this man or, or the scribe that we read about earlier, or a little later in the, in the book of Mark, ever became followers of Jesus. We don't know. We're not told that. We're just kind of left hanging. Now, he went away sorrowful, so a lot of people believe, well, right then, he obviously didn't repent and give all his possessions away and follow Christ. That's true. But my point is, sometimes that's how we think of evangelism. You know, we have this one opportunity to share the Lord with people, and we just go in gangbusters, you know, and it's kind of like a one-shot approach. And a lot of times, it doesn't work. The one-shot approach to evangelism very seldom works. Um, We know apparently they moved closer to him. They had a dialogue with Jesus, so at least they were within, you know, a close proximity to Jesus. But we're not told whether they actually became followers of Christ. We're never told of their salvation. But what's interesting is the Lord didn't press them. He didn't, he didn't, Ask the scribe, well, hey, you know, if you want to become my follower, then do this. You know, here's the, here's the steps, one, two, three. You know, he didn't whip out the Romans road. He didn't whip out the four spiritual laws and, and go at it that way. He didn't do that. And some of us have been taught, I believe, that witnessing or evangelism is just that. It's, it's a, you've got one opportunity to share with somebody. And so you just have to go for the jugular right out of the gate. <laughs> and there's people that do that. Either you're going to win them or lose them, but you better do it right now. Now, should there be a passion in our heart when we share Christ? Should there be a, uh, a, uh, just a, a, a drive to get it done? Yes. But so many times we think that sharing our faith is simply hitting a, an unbeliever with a Roman's road or a four spiritual laws or whatever you want to call it and press them to make a decision about Jesus on the spot. I want to change your thinking about that a little bit. Because that kind of thinking makes it sound like their salvation is totally up to us. <laughs> Does it not? I mean, you've got to make this decision now. Because if you don't, I mean, I'm your only hope. <laughs> if you don't get saved right now, now, yeah, granted, that person could drop dead two minutes later and go to hell. But the, the real question is, If you shared the gospel with them, 
and they did not come to faith in Christ, and then they died at a later period in time, you've done what you've been told to do. You know, and I use this illustration a lot, but I just think it, it, it makes sense. You know, we're simply the waiter. We bring the food to the table. We bring the message of the gospel before people. We don't want to mess with the ingredients of the food. The chef has done a wonderful job making dinner. We just bring it to the table and we set it before people and say, here, here is a truthful meal for you to eat. And either they're going to respond by eating it and liking it, or they're going to take a bite, they're going to spit it out, they're going to, or, or they're going to consume the whole thing, and, and you're going to be able to witness all that. All right? But here, Christ does not press them for a decision. And we've been trained as if other people's salvation depends totally on us. And we fail to remember that we have a sovereign God, and he is the one who does the saving, not us. We are not the Savior. He simply uses us to bring people into that relationship with him, closer to him, you might say. He saves their heart. He changes them. He transforms them. And so the, the one-shot method, is, as a lot of people call it, is very, very ineffective. Um, in my first church, I had a pastor that kind of believed along these lines, the first pastor I served with. And every week, we had a bus ministry. And we had to go out and we had to knock on doors, cold turkey. And you go down, you know, at Hayward, you knock on, hey, we got a bus ministry, we'll come pick your kids up, you know, here's your candy for the kids. <laughs> you know, I mean, today, if I were to do this, I was single back then, I'd probably be thrown in jail. <laughs> okay, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, but that's what we did. Okay, it was a different era. But, hey, there's a strange guy in our complex giving out candy, and he wants us to get on a bus. You know, I mean, can you imagine this conversation today in, in the world in which we live? But back then, it was okay. And sure enough, you'd pull up Sunday morning, and the kids would be out there. The parents would be like, see ya. No interview, no check, nothing. I mean, it was kind of scary when I look back on it. But we had to go out every week, cold turkey, and knock on doors. And we had to note down, yeah, I went to this address. Oh, they're Catholic. They're this, they're that. And the idea was you need to press them for a decision. You know, when they answer the door, you have the questions you ask, you know, and, and you have them memorized, and you have the verses, and boy, you lead them down, and you get that track in their hand, and hey, do you mind if I come in and sit down? I really want you to go through these, these four steps, you know, understand these, these four spiritual laws. It's, your soul depends on it. And, you know, some people shut the door in your face. A lot of people back in that climate would, well, you know, they'd stand at the door and they'd talk to you. And you'd be able to do your little presentation. And some of them were touched by the Lord. I'm not saying he doesn't use that at all. But it wasn't very effective. Because we know that God's word, what, never returns void. So as long as you're giving out the word of God, um, usually you're okay, you're safe. But the method may not be the most effective means of reaching a lot of people with the life-changing message of the gospel. Because with that method, a lot of time, unbelievers are sometimes driven away. You know, the next time they see you, they see you coming, what do they do? <laughs> they run the other way. You know, they don't want to get into it with you again. And, I mean, when you stop and think of our message, the gospel itself, the message of the gospel itself is offensive. Would we all agree? I mean, people don't like to... Told they're sinners. 
I mean, you know, very seldom. Most people, no, I'm a good person, right? They argue with that. Um, no one wants to hear that they're a sinner. Everyone basically believes they're a pretty good person, at least in our culture and in, by society. But the gospel itself is offensive. But with that being said, it doesn't mean we should put on more offense. You know, that doesn't give us the right to go offend people with the gospel. And sometimes the in-your-face kind of evangelism um, applied by some believers may actually do more harm than good. And so we have to be wise about this. Secondly, I think with that method, unbelievers sometimes make insincere commitments. Simply just to get rid of you. You know, they don't want to talk to you anymore. Okay, what, you pray the prayer? Okay, sure, I'll pray the prayer. And we go away going, wow, they prayed the prayer. Now they're a Christian. Show me in the New Testament where someone prayed a prayer and they became a Christian. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But it makes us feel good. And it strokes our ego. So we, when we get back to the church, and well, how many did, oh, I had five responses. You know, I had four people pray the prayer. And I had, you know, and you get a little reward. And it's very fleshly driven. And a lot of unbelievers sometimes make insincere commitments. Uh, Billy Graham himself said that. Of all the millions of people that he's spoken to and the thousands that apparently have come to the Lord through the message of the gospel over the years of preaching, he himself realized that, you know what? Not all those commitments are probably sincere. You know? Um, And sometimes when we take that approach, a lot of times we're pushing people in the direction of making a decision about something they're not ready to make a decision about. Because we think it's somehow up to us to manipulate them into this prayer or whatever. And then thirdly, this method, a lot of times unbelievers sometimes don't make intelligent decisions. Unbelievers don't make intelligent decisions. And, you know, we've, we have to believe that Christianity is an intelligent faith. It's not a faith of fairy tales. And God must give us at least some understanding of the gospel before we can make a decision to follow the Savior. If we don't understand the gospel, there's no way you can make a commitment to Christ. That's why Paul says, how are they going to hear if they don't have a preacher? How how are they going to hear if if nobody goes and shares the message of the gospel with with them? Um, Our standing as sinners and our need of a Savior has to be totally understood before someone can come to Christ. You know, it's kind of like if you got up in the morning and I called you on the phone and said, hey, are you taking your car into the auto mechanic today? And you said, why would I do that? Well, it's broke. Well, how do you know that? Well, I I just think it's broke. I mean, are you just going to take my word for it? I haven't inspected your car. I haven't done anything. Are you just going to call the auto mechanic, AAA? Hey, come tow my car because it's broke. No, what are you going to do? You're going to go out and you're going to try to start your car. You're going to affirm what I'm telling you is true. Okay? Um, And a lot of times we expect unbelievers just to nod their head in agreement with everything we believe as a believer when they're totally blind. I mean, their sin has blinded them. They're not going to comprehend the gospel the very first time they hear it. Now, could God allow them to? Sure. But how many of you, I'm just curious, and you can raise your hand, how many of you came to Christ the very first time you heard the gospel? Anybody? 
I didn't. It took three, four, five, ten times. Probably more than that. Plus the fact that saying a simple prayer never saved anyone, biblically. So, this one-shot method of evangelism, thinking this is the only shot I got, and boy, i got to get this done, it really harms the unbeliever more than helps them, I would say. But it also, when it comes to believers, it makes us feel timid. It's tough on a believer to practice that kind of evangelism. It's one thing to talk about the Lord. It's quite another to go into a full-scale gospel presentation thinking that if this person doesn't respond affirmatively, I've failed. When that's simply not true. It makes us feel timid. We don't even want to begin to talk with somebody. Secondly, it makes us feel unprepared. You know, how many of us have hesitated to share our faith with someone? Even when maybe God was prompting us to do so, but we, we hesitated because we thought, well, maybe we don't have the presentation downright. Maybe we don't have all the answers to all the questions they're going to ask me. So what do we do? It makes us feel unprepared. It makes us feel timid. And it makes us feel, thirdly, that the time is never right. There's just never the right time. There's never enough time to actually sit down and share the Lord with somebody. Because if we don't close the deal, in our mind, we failed. Um, you know, most of us who've been Christians can bring the Lord into any conversation if we desire to do so. At any time. You can do that. But it takes special timing to walk down the Romans road with someone. It takes a special allotted time to take them through a four spiritual laws track or any track for that matter. And so a lot of times we think, well, you know, I'm just going through the checkout counter here. I can't hold up the line and, you know, rip off a, a gospel presentation to the cashier. People aren't going to appreciate that, so I just won't say anything. And so we have to change our thinking on that. And then fourthly, it makes us feel rejected. A lot of times, unbelievers are often turned off by that approach that, boy, you know, it's just kind of a, a one-time presentation of the gospel. Um, because we come off more like vacuum cleaner salesmen. You know, hey, let's just get this done. Than, than true biblical evangelists. You know, we're just trying to work our way through this presentation that we learned in some program, and hopefully they'll be patient with us long enough to get us... To, to, to get them to the idea that they're actually going to pray this prayer at the end of the presentation. There's got to be a better way. And not all evangelism is done that way. That's not the only way to do evangelism. It's probably one of the least effective ways, I would say. Um, because people don't always come into God's kingdom in one giant leap, do they? None of us did. It's a process. It's a journey. You know, you're on a spiritual journey. You start asking questions. And we have to realize that, you know what? Most of us didn't come to faith the first time we heard the gospel. Why do we expect other people to? You know, they, they have to take time to think about what we've said. And so in this message, I want to cover some principles here as we kind of prepare to share our faith personally with other people. And, and these are kind of just Simple principles, but they're important. The first one is we lead people, God saves them. We lead people, God saves them. Um, we don't save anyone. Uh, we can just lead them to the Savior. 
when Paul came to Philippi in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says that the Lord opened, speaking of Lydia, who he was reaching out to, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. That's Acts 16, 14. Um, And it's important to understand that if the Lord had not opened her heart, guess what? She would not have heeded the words of Apostle Paul, even though he was the Apostle Paul. So it doesn't really matter who is speaking the gospel. What's important is God working in their heart. And you have to be sensitive to that at times. You know, there are times when it's better to walk away from a conversation, to walk away from a presentation of the gospel, because you're sensing this person is not ready to hear it. You know, maybe they're getting agitated, maybe they're just completely angry at you, whatever. You just, I mean, why pursue that? Now, you continue to pray for them. You continue that God would somehow uh, create other opportunities But we have to honestly believe, as I said on Sunday even, salvation is solely the work of God. It's solely the work of God. If we think that we have anything to do with someone being saved, other than bringing them the message of the gospel, we're sorely mistaken. We only give that message. Think about when Andrew met Jesus. His first concern was what? For his brother. And he didn't try to convince Peter uh, but he invited him to come and see. In John, uh, it says in, in John uh, 1, uh, 42, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Or when the Samaritan woman met Jesus at the well, she said to the men of the city, in John four twenty nine. Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did, which is pretty impressive. Could this be the Christ? What'd she do? She, she, she wanted these people to come to Christ. That's what, what our desire should be. Only God can open up a person's heart. We can never save anyone is the second point there. We can pray, we can preach, we can witness until we turn blue. But no one will ever be saved by our own efforts. It will not happen. It can happen. Because no one is saved until God opens his or her heart. Remember the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. Right? Acts 9 says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He put them in prison, possibly even executed some of them for their faith. I mean, can you imagine using a one-shot evangelism method with somebody like that? You'd probably be dead. God had to open his heart to the gospel. And how did he do that? Do you remember the story? Remember on the the road to Damascus? What did he do? He blinded his eyes on the road to Damascus. So... God saves them. We don't. Thirdly, our responsibility is to lead them. We, we can't uh, carry people into the kingdom. We can't push people into the kingdom. We have to gently lead them. We have to trust the Holy Spirit to do what we are unable to do, unable to do. In Acts chapter 7, you read the story of Stephen, and he gives a brilliant defense 
of his faith. And you think, wow, this is pretty impressive. How did God honor that? Verses 54 to 60, we learn what they do. They stoned him for speaking the truth of the gospel. They stoned Stephen. And by the way, in verse 58, it says it was Saul who was holding their coats while they picked up the stones and killed them. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, it says, There is Saul approved of his execution, speaking of, of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they all, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I mean, can you imagine living in that kind of environment? You look over once again there at Acts 9. And you, you begin to see what God has to do to really get a hold of this guy named Saul. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's looking for more people to throw in jail. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Note how Paul answers, who are you, Lord? Apparently the testimony maybe of Stephen got his attention when he was being stoned to death and he was sharing the Lord with that group of people and Saul was hearing it. Or maybe other believers had influence on him somehow. But he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> and he answered him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you, be told, you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. I mean, can you imagine being without your sight for an hour, let alone three days? Now, there was a disciple, it says in verse 10, at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, arise. Here I am, Lord. We, we covered this on Sunday, too. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judah, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about a lot about this guy, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
and he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. God opened his heart in the process of opening his heart to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at this, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. Was, it, was this Ananias doing some miraculous healing? No, this was the Lord's work. Was he using Ananias? Definitely. And he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. And you can read on how they kind of even questioned, was he legit in his conversion? They weren't completely 100% sold on the fact that this guy Saul, Saul came to Christ. Why did that happen? Because God changed his heart. It wasn't the words of Ananias. It wasn't him laying his hands on. It wasn't anything like that. It was God working in an incredible way. And so you have to believe and understand before you ever go out and evangelize that all we do is lead people. God saves them. If you go out there with that mindset, any conversation you may have about Christ with someone is a victory. Even if they reject you to your face and you walk away discouraged, it's still a victory. Why? Because hopefully when you shared the gospel, you did just that. You shared the word of God with them, even if it's your own testimony. That's why it's so important when you have a testimony to make sure that you weave some scripture in there. Make sure that they're hearing scripture in your testimony. And you don't have to, you know, have the address right and all that. You can simply say, you know what? When I came to Christ, someone showed me a verse and it said that, wow, you know what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They don't care whether it's in the book of Romans or the book of Genesis. These people don't care. They're not even believers. But the word of God has power. And when you share that with them and you can tell them, hey, you know what? That convicted my heart. And it caused me to think, wow, am I a good person? And then all of a sudden, they're, they're starting to scratch their head. And they're starting to think, well, I just told this guy I'm a good person. Now he's telling me that he thought that. So you kind of identify with them, right? They're thinking, well, I'm not thinking something that's way out in left field. But then you can say, but I had to bring my thoughts back under the authority of, of the Word of God. And a lot of times when you're witnessing to somebody, um, they're religious to some degree, they're Catholic or some kind of religious upbringing, maybe. And you can kind of dial down to, you know, if they're Catholic, definitely. You know, well, you know, as a Catholic, you believe the Bible, right? And they always say yes. I mean, usually. They'll say yes. They don't understand it. They don't even know what they're saying yes to. But they, you just want them to say yes. Oh, okay, because somebody shared a verse from the Bible and it said, and then you tell them the verse. They're not going to argue with that. You know, they're not going to argue with that. And we just let God's work do its ministry and its work in their hearts. They may scoff us. They may even persecute us. Um, but our witness will lead them, um, not push them to Jesus. 
So you're not going to you're not going to have a whole lot of success if you're out there being a pushy Christian trying to push other people into your way of thinking about Christ. That's not going to go well. Because people don't like to be pushed around. Period. So we lead people, God saves them. Secondly, there's a time for planting, watering, cultivating and harvesting. What do I mean by that? It's, you know, that's that's agriculture, right? I mean, that's that's basic 101 gardening. Uh, one of the most common metaphors for scripture or, or for evangelism in scripture is that of agriculture. When you have a plant, it always begins with a seed. And when we, when we are the first to share a witness of Jesus with someone, think of it this way. It's like you're planting a little seed of the gospel in their heart. That's all you're doing. You're just planting the seed. Uh, Psalm 126.6 says, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Remember the old hymn? Bringing in the sheaves. You know, that's what it's about. <clears throat> but to bring in the sheaves, what do you got to do? You got to go sow the seed first. And if you have the mentality that as soon as you sow that seed, there's going to be a big plant there and you're going to be picking oranges off it, it makes the process very discouraging when you don't see that happening. Um, and so there's a time for planting, for watering, for cultivating and harvesting. Sometimes we simply plant the seed. That's all we're, we're called to do. Um, in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, Jesus describes the word of God. We, we know this parable. The gospel is the, the seed to be, sh- to, to be sown into the soil. And he, he lists there four types of soil. And some is more receptive and some is less receptive, right? And when you go out and you throw grass seed on your front lawn, if it falls on the the paved walkway that you have going down the middle, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of grass there. But if it falls on the fertile soil that you just put down and you put fertilizer down and that seed takes root in that that soil, what's what's going to happen? It's going to sprout up some grass. It's the same, same concept. When you talk to somebody about the Lord, it may be the first time anybody's ever talked to them. Think about it. It might be the very first time they've heard the message of the gospel. Even in today's society, there are people occasionally that you can run into, and they'll say, when you share the gospel, I've never heard this before. And you're thinking, really? Really? You've never heard this before? I mean, they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about church. They've heard about a lot of things, but they've never heard the true biblical gospel Maybe it's the first time, and, you know, they're, maybe they're not receptive. Maybe they are. We don't know the condition of their heart when we're sowing the seed. We simply have to sow the seed and trust the Lord. And sometimes we're called to water and to cultivate. Uh, look at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul points this out very clearly in verse 5. 1 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 5. They're saying in the, in the Corinthian church, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Jesus, all this. And, and Paul answers them, and he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He answers the question. 
servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned each of you. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so it's important that we understand that concept. That sometimes we're going to be out there sowing seed. Sometimes we're going to be watering. Sometimes we're going to be cultivating. Sometimes we may even be able to reap a harvest. But it's not going to be every time. It's not going to be every time. Many times we're going to talk to people who've had seeds already planted in their hearts. Have you ever done that? You, you bring up the conversation of faith with somebody, and they say, that's really weird, because my friend last week was t- talking to me about this very same thing. And you realize, wow, okay, God has already kind of prepared their heart for what we're talking about. When you may run into somebody that says, wow, I've never heard this before at all. Their heart's hard. But you know what? Um, maybe they become curious. Maybe they have questions. Maybe they are sincerely kind of seeking some truth and they don't even know God's drawing them. But God is sovereignly working on their hearts. And guess what? We become God's instrument in that, in that time and in that place. And we simply are adding to the witness that someone else has already given. And then we also sometimes, we, we do harvest. We look for opportunities to bring people one step closer to the kingdom. And sometimes we actually have opportunities. God affords us the opportunities to actually lead them to Christ, to, to actually see them make a profession of faith in Christ. What a wonderful time that is. I think all around us, especially in our area, there are people who are ready to be harvested. I really believe this. John 4.35, Jesus said, Do not say there are four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. You know, world events and, 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 and things that go on in our world affects people's thinking. It affects their security. It affects uh, um, a lot. So when you have war breaking out, when you have a, a virus going crazy, when you have fear in people's hearts, a lot of times people are looking for answers to their questions. They're looking for hope where there is none. And I mean, we have the gospel of Christ And we have to believe, as Jesus said, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So sometimes God gives us that special time, that special blessing, where we actually get to sit down with someone, and they they say, yeah, I've heard the gospel a lot. I just need to commit my life to Christ. And in that moment, you want to make sure they understand what they're doing, because it is a big commitment. You want to maybe review the gospel with them. Well, why do you want to do this? And and the right answer is not, well, you know, I just want to please my mom. Or, you know, uh, I just want to become a better person. No, the right answer is, you know what, I have nowhere else to go. I need forgiveness for my sin, which is great. Trust me. 
and you, you, you sense that, that passion and you sense that, that kind of their end, end of their, their rope, they need to be saved. And in, the, in that moment, you, you, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. And then I want you to pray to the Lord. And you just basically tell the Lord what's on your heart. And you pray for them. You pray for their salvation. And then you say, go ahead. You know, and, and see what, what happens. Because if God is truly working, their prayer will be biblical. Their prayer will not be some emotional thing. Their prayer will be very, you know, it will make sense. And then sometimes, fourthly, we never know when the harvest will come. Okay, we never know. Um, think of in Acts, Acts chapter 8, when Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Verse 26, Acts 8, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There's a desert place there. And he said he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. Queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. I mean, isn't this exciting? This guy's just, you know, kind of sitting around, and the angel of the Lord says to him, Hey, you need to go down there because you're going to run into this person. And you're probably thinking, Wow, that, that's pretty amazing. The, the treasurer of the queen of, of the Ethiopians, and I'm going to go witness to them? It'd be like the Lord tapping you on your shoulder and say, Hey, you know what? Um, Trump's ready to come to Christ. You need to go share the gospel with him. Or whoever. It said he had come to Jerusalem to worship, verse 28, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet of Isaiah. What do you see there? God's preparing his heart. God's preparing his heart. Verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. You know, I think sometimes in our theology, we remove the spirit so far because we don't want to be like charismatics and think that, you know, the spirit's whispering in our ear every two seconds telling us, oh, there's a demon of this, a demon of that, or whatever. So we just turn off the spirit completely. There is a place for the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in our Christian lives. That's why he's part of our you know, being. That's why he's inside us. Um, it's not going to be an audible voice, but sometimes God can, in, even in conversation with somebody. I sense sometimes, you know what, Steve, you just need to shut up. I mean, you know, you just need to stop talking at this point in time. It's hard for you, but just stop. And then, you know what, sometimes that person starts to express whatever, and, you know, they come to Christ. Sometimes they don't. But you have to be sensitive. If you're just going in to saying, well, you know what, I just got to get through the, my presentation. If you'll just shut up and let me get through my points, then I can pray with you at the end, and then you'll be a Christian. If you have that kind of mentality, that's completely not right. It's not biblical. But when you go into something like this and you realize, wow, I don't even know who this guy is. Wow, he's a statesman. He's, he's the head of our treasury. Wow, there'd be a lot of room for intimidation there. And the Spirit said to Philip in verse 29, go over and join his chariot. 
At this point, Philip's kind of excited. So he says in verse 30, he says, so Philip ran to him, which is very much an action of faith. I guarantee you, if this guy was in charge of all her money, and he's seated in his chariot, that kind of has an understanding that he must have an entourage around him. I'm sure there's armed guards guarding you know, his chariot. If this guy's in charge of all the money for the queen of the Ethiopians, he must have had a secure detachment with him. And here's this guy running up to him. Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? In verse 31, Philip's probably thinking, I'm going to have to, you know, get ready to tell these people while I'm there. No, God took care of all that. The eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit down with him and talk about the scriptures. Now, the passage of the scripture he was reading was like this. Look at this. Isn't this a God thing? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken from away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began with his scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch asked, hey, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? In other words, apparently this guy came to Christ. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all of the towns until he came to Caesarea. I mean, I'm sure he did after that experience. You know, think about it. I mean, this guy comes to Christ, not only that, but he gets baptized. And it's all because, what, Philip was obedient. He understood that, you know what, I don't know what this issue is. I don't know how much this guy knows. But when you have it in your heart and in your mind that there's a time for planting, for watering, watering, cultivating, and harvesting, it's kind of exciting because you don't know where God is actually bringing you into this person's life. Is it the the sowing part? Is it the watering? Is it cultivating? Or it may be the harvest time. And then thirdly, our greatest responsibility is faithfulness. Our greatest responsibility is faithfulness. Um, we have to understand that some, some Christians are especially gifted by the Lord to evangelize. I really believe this. Um, John the Baptist in the New Testament is, is kind of a good example. I mean, the Lord gave him the ability to, to prophesy and to, to be a, a witness for the coming of the Lord. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says he gave himself, and he himself gave some to the church to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. 
Just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you're going to be a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, teacher, and an apostle, all wrapped up into one. That's probably not the case for most people. So there are well-known evangelists. Moody, Sunday, Graham. Um, people like Greg Laurie. They just have an ability to take the gospel to the masses. And then you have people that are little-known evangelists, those even in our own church. People have a real burden to take the gospel to unbelievers. They have a desire, they have a gift to reach unbelievers. I think of, of Michael in our church who, you know, rents space down at the San Jose uh, swap meet to set up a booth. Why? For the express purpose of giving out tracts and sharing the gospel with people. I think of uh, uh, Daniel Burdone, who's going to be speaking at our church um, on the 13th. And he's an open-air campaigner. He's an open-air evangelist. He goes out on the streets, and he goes down to Redwood City usually every uh, Friday night once a month. He'll go down there, and while they're having their concert or they're down there, people coming out of the restaurants or whatever, he sets up his big white board, and he begins to draw with very attractive colors, in the midst of a, of a uh, black light. And it makes it very, people are like, wow, what's this guy doing? And he's drawing an image of the gospel. And people stop, and they begin to talk, and he has other people standing there with him, and they start handing out tracks. It's an amazing thing. I can't do that. I mean, I'd be like drawing stick figures, you know? I mean, people would laugh. But he has that ability. God has gifted him in that way. See, evangelism is a gift for some. It is. It's a spiritual gift. But listen to this. It's a responsibility of each and every one of us to evangelize. Whether we're gifted like some of these people or not, we're called to go and to take this good news of the gospel to those who've yet to hear. So you have some Christians are especially gifted to witness. Some Christians know how to witness but never do. Probably many of you have been through a system of evangelism, whether it's the Romans Road or Four Spiritual Laws or Evangelism Explosion. I mean, you've given all the information. You have it in your brain. But what happens? We never use it. We never take advantage of it. Um, You have to really understand that a witness is not something we do, but it's someone we are. So don't think of personal evangelism as something that you're going to do. Think of it as something that you you are. Uh, Remember that Jesus called us to be what? The salt and the light in the world. Evangelism is not a a program. Now, there are ways that we can give you tools to effectively communicate the gospel to people and answer questions in in a wise way. But it's not a program, it's a lifestyle. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus did not say this. He didn't say, go and witness. What did he say? You shall be my witnesses, right? Big difference. Big difference. You shall be my witness. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We'll look here at the end, 10 practical ways to lead others one step closer. 
And think of it progressively that way. That way you don't get discouraged. You know, if you have a conversation with somebody, don't go into the conversation thinking, oh, I've got to close this deal. That's not, our, that's not our business. There are many times I've had conversations with people that I've never closed the deal with. But you know what? There's always another time when that person comes back and they have another question. <laughs> hey, last time we were together, you know, we were talking about this. What do you think about this? You know, and, and I, I keep them hungry. I want them to come back. I want them to know that there's truth and that their questions can be answered from the Bible. So first step here is walk with the Lord. You can't lead someone to Christ if you're not walking with the Lord yourself. Um, without a proper example, and that goes back to our character, right? Our words are meaningless. It, they don't mean anything. Walking with Christ focuses us on evangelism and makes us sensitive to others. Because that's what Christ would do. Secondly, pray specifically. Pray, first of all, for a burden for the loss. If you don't have a burden for the loss, especially here in California, Redwood City, especially the peninsula, I mean, less than 3% of people go to any house of faith on a Sunday or a weekend. I mean, they're ripe for the picking. They're all over the place. They need to hear the gospel. Ask God to give you a burden for them. And maybe it starts small. Ask God to give you a burden for one person. I mean, we should all have at least one unbeliever in our life that we're actively pursuing and praying for and asking God to work in their life. And then secondly, pray for boldness to speak to them. Pray for boldness to speak to them. And I think that you can see that in um, Ephesians chapter 6. Paul kind of outlines his prayer there in verses 18 and 20. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We need to ask God for a renewed boldness in our witness. And then thirdly, there invite others, invite unbelievers to church. Invite them to church. There's nothing wrong with inviting unbelievers to church. There's nothing wrong with having unbelievers in our service. We're not going to cater to them. And yes, they'll probably feel uncomfortable because they're going to be hearing a message that is offensive for an unbeliever. We're not going to stroke their egos and tell them they're good people and all this stuff. We're not going to dumb down the gospel. We're not going to dumb down the music for them. But at the same time, it's a good place to invite someone who's not a Christian if they'll come. Let them come. Because we know that they're going to see God's people truly worshiping God. They're going to hear the word of God. And you can talk about, how you know, hey, boy, this is, you know, the service just, I get a lot out of it. I, I, I just, you know, grow in my relationship with the Lord. has helped me in this area of my life or whatever the teaching. I mean, you know, you have to kind of instruct them and, and don't, I wouldn't bring someone in cold turkey. I'd maybe tell them what goes on. You know, yeah, it starts off with some announcements. We have some music and, you know, the, and, you know, you, you got to be wise about it. But the more information you give them, the more comfortable they're going to feel when they walk in the door. Um, fourthly, open your homes to unbelievers. 
Christian hospitality is a great tool, and I don't know why more people do not use it. You know, then um, you don't even have to bring them to your house. Take them out for coffee. Uh, take them, you know, for a, a burger or something. But use hospitality to build a relationship. Remember how they described Jesus, right? He's often described as, as eating and fellowshipping with who? Tax collectors and sinners, right? Well, I think we should have that same kind of reputation. You know, we shouldn't just be always hanging out with Christians 24-7. Now, we don't want to get to the point where bad company corrupts good morals, because Scripture warns us about that. But as far as witnessing and as far as living your life amongst a group of unbelievers, there's nothing wrong with that. Being more specific, dial it down to one or two people. Um, be sure you're a, a, a thermostat, not a thermometer. <laughs> you know, that's kind of important. Um, fifthly, listen to the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we, we fly through this process of evangelism, um, thinking about everyone and, and everything but Jesus and his kingdom. You know, we have to slow down a little bit. Um, sometimes we miss opportunities, I really believe, to, to move an unbeliever one step closer to entering the kingdom because we're not sensitive to, to, to the situation. Um, the Holy Spirit is, is completely able to give you the words that you need to say and, and instruct you along the way if you distrust him. Um, sixthly, introduce Jesus into the conversation. This is simple, but it's very effective. Okay, A lot of times when, when people are talking about things that are in the news even, you know, whether it's uh, same-sex marriage or war or, or the virus or whatever. I mean, think of a verse. Hey, did you know what the Bible says about that? The Bible says this. You know, um, or you know what? Jesus was tempted too. If somebody is sharing something with you or, you know what? The Lord cares about your problem. Bring God into the conversation. Don't be ashamed of that. You know, we've, we've been shamed into silence, I'm, I'm afraid, as Christians. And we need to be more bold with our witness, trusting God that he'll take our words and use them in people's lives. And so just season our conversations with, with spiritual phrases that sometimes can open the door for a spiritual conversation that can be meaningful with someone. Uh, seventh, give, give good materials. You know, uh, Dave has done a wonderful job giving, getting our tracks stocked up over there and things like that. And we try to have stock, uh, tracks that are biblical, Tracks that are uh, concise and to the point, pamphlets, things like that. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of resources that you can get today. And, and, but make sure they're good materials. Make sure it's, and if you have a question about something, bring it to one of us, and we'd be more than happy uh, to help you with that. Uh, this is something that I, I'm just not bold enough a lot of times to do, but... Uh, Andrew Rappaport always does this almost every time we go out to eat. Um, eight there, ask, can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? And he usually does it with the waiter or waitress that comes to our table. He strikes up a conversation with them. And, you know, at first I'm like, what is he doing? Does he know this person? And he doesn't. You know, just, he's one of those persons that's very gifted with evangelism. And he just starts up a conversation with them. And, and before you know it, this person's standing there for five minutes. 
yeah, you know, I've just got out of the hospital and I had this and then, you know, whatever. They're just kind of unloading on them. And, and, you know, I mean, in my flesh, I'm sitting there, can we order the food? You know, I'm thinking, what's he doing? What's he going? Where's he going with this? And the first time I saw him do it, I'm thinking, what is he doing? But then he stops and he goes, do you mind if we pray for you right now? I've never had, I've never seen someone tell him no. They always, oh, oh, sure. I mean, you're in a restaurant. This guy's working or this lady's working and they're bowing their head in prayer and they pray for him. It touches their hearts, I'm telling you. But we have to be bold to do those kind of things. I mean, even if they're skeptics, they like the idea that someone's praying for them just in case they may be wrong. (laughs) There's just, you know, there's that possible chance in their mind. Okay, they'll they'll usually be respectful about that. There are some people that are just idiots and they don't want anything to do with it. But for the most part, most people who are reasonable to engage in any kind of spiritual conversation would not oppose you praying for them. Uh, Ninthly, share your testimony. Um, See, an unbeliever can argue with you about your facts about the existence of God or the reliability of scriptures or the deity of Christ or uh, you know the host of other biblical evidences that we can give them. They can argue till the cows come home. The one thing they can't argue with is your personal testimony. I mean, when you tell them, look, this is what happened to me. All right? They're not going to say, no, it didn't. I don't believe it. They never say that. And it gives you the opportunity to give God the glory. Uh, it's like the man in John 9.25, when he's healed. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. <laughs> One thing I know, that what? I was blind and now I see. You know, that's what he tells the religious leaders who were kind of inquiring, well, who is this? What is going on here? And it's the most effective tool in witnessing is sharing your personal testimony. And if you don't know how to write a testimony, come and talk to us. I mean, you should be able to share your testimony in less than five minutes with somebody. You include some scripture. And, you know, there's, you can have a longer testimony, but I think you should be able to do it in two to three minutes, frankly, because it's, you never know when God, you know, be on a bus, you're going to be somewhere in a plane, and God opens up that door, and boy, you can just slip it in there. And you trust God to use it for his glory. And then, last thing here, explain the gospel. Um, everyone needs to know at least one way to explain the gospel. It doesn't matter how it is, but you have to be comfortable in doing that you know, if someone, if you walk up to someone and you say, you, you know, would you mind if I share the gospel with you? And they say, what's that? You should be able to tell them the gospel, you know, and there's resources that, that can help you do that. And we'll continue to work on that. But as, as, as believers, we lead an unbeliever one step closer to the kingdom. Um, and I think as we do that, we ourselves move one step closer to becoming more and more like Christ. So hopefully that's helpful. And we'll get into this more as we continue. But